Hello, and welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditch Witch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined, as always, by the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. Bass Edge TV can be seen three times weekly on the Outdoor Channel and also on the World Fishing Network and Wild TV in Canada. How are you doing today, Aaron? Steve, I'm doing well, man. We have uh, Dave Woolak coming up as we head east out to Lake Murray, South Carolina, and then a little bit later, we'll be joined by the pond boss himself, fisheries biologist Bob Lust, to talk about a very interesting topic, and that's the 80-20 rule. That sounds great. Let's get after it. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing, but... Oh, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. (laughs) Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Aaron, I feel like we kicked off the year. I guess for a lot of folks, it was a big week uh, last week with the Bassmaster Classic down in Louisiana, and my goodness, those guys caught some fish. Boy, they did, and I think, you know, when you look at the crowds, I, I heard that they set records. I talked with a good buddy of mine, Joe Mitchell, who was down there obviously running a camera boat and uh, kind of touched base with him, and he said it was just a fantastic event, and looks like old Skeet pulled through, and congratulations, hats off to him Absolutely. and, and uh, what he was able to do. Yeah, no, Skeet was one, of, he is one of, the, one of those guys that you knew one of these days was going to jump up and win one of those things, and, uh, and we just congratulate him and uh, feel great about that for him. I noticed he was uh, sporting a little bit of different do there. Yeah, I know, it went from a lot of hair to no hair, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll have to follow suit and, and <laughs> shave my head. <laughs> that's what I was going to say, I think that'd be a good look for you. No, 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 no. No, I'll, uh, I'm going to keep it as long as what I can. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I tuned in uh, Sunday to the uh, live streaming just a little bit and listened to the guys on stage because I always like to hear, you know, how they caught the fish and, and whatnot. And I was, you know, I was really struck by uh, Mike Iconelli's comments going into the tournament. He had seen that on the long range forecast that there was going to be cold fronts, and he understood at that point that fish that uh, getting ready to go in and spawn would be indeed you know, pulling back out because of that cold water. And his strategy was to fish out a little ways and to fish for those in more of a pre-spawn situation. And uh, that's where we're at around a lot of parts of the country right now. Well, it is. And, you know, we talk a lot about that in the seminars that we give, too. You know, this time of year, we're dealing with those violent weather patterns, and the fish are on the move when they make that transition. You know, they're not going to move very far if the weather, you know, comes in and changes the the surface temperature and it makes it uncomfortable. They're just going to pull back out right to the first deeper area back off of, of uh, that, those staging areas and mm-hmm. and seek out that comfort and you know hats off to him and uh, you know what a consummate professional and I, th- I think obviously there's a reason why those guys are at the top of their game yeah you know February is uh, you know it's always been one of my favorite months it's, I think it really is the best month to catch a really really big fish I think it's your best chance and of course coming from Texas I used to take my vacation in February, and, uh, you know, those fish are storing up calories, getting ready for the spawn. They're carrying that extra weight of the eggs, and uh, it's just a great time to catch a big fish. But it can be kind of tough because these fronts that come through in the spring can really have a big effect on them. And if you understand those, then you can turn that into an advantage. 
Precisely, and I think that is, you know, it, it is one of my favorite times of year because it's an it's an opportunity where you get to use multiple baits. You know, I, I just know some of the things that's going on around here in the Midwest. The jerk bait obviously comes into play. Uh, anything that's resembling a shad swimming a grub, you know, and then as the the water starts to warm, they kind of leave those those schools of bait fish like we talked about because they're on the move. They're starting to to get that into that that spawning mode. And then that's when, you know, some of your crayfish, they start loosening up and the wiggle wart, the jig, the shaky head, those start coming into play. So it's one of those times of year to where obviously you want to look for shallow fish, but also like we just spoke about with Mike Iconelli is have in the back of your mind what those fish are going to do and how they are going to react to an adverse weather condition. And that simply just means pulling back off, going into a little bit deeper water. You know, this past Friday night, Steve, I was able to... Uh, go up and spend some time with kind of the renowned bait designer, Tim Hughes. And it was really interesting to see, you know, some of the, not only the the paint jobs that he's able to put on some of these, but also just study, you know, how those different paint schemes and, and, and the finishes that are put on those, how those actually affect the bass. And, and, you know, I think anytime, like we've talked about with those jigs that you made and matching the hatch, that kind of takes it to a whole new level when, when you see a, a true artist like this. And I know there's several guys that, you know, Snowden and Hernke and some of those guys do it themselves. But it was really, really interesting to see. Okay. Does this mean now you're going to have me airbrush and crank <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You better get the respirator and suit up, man, because we're going in. <laughs> i tell you what. I got a, uh, I got a pretty good buzz off that paint from those jigs. Man, I'm telling you, is that not the truth? Yeah, that's one thing. When it says keep you know, well-ventilated, I'm, I'm sure Kathy appreciated uh, you, know, you painting those in the house. Boy, that's interesting. She did mention that. <laughs> Too cold to be out in the garage and stuff. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think you can make the little adjustments to your baits that can make uh, a lot of difference. You know what? I, I think it's fun. You know, I'm I'm going trout fishing next week, and I was tying some tails on some jerk baits that uh, we're going to use down the White River in Arkansas. And I just find it's fun, and it's kind of like getting out to fish before you can fish, you know. It's, right. Uh, well, anytime you have the ability to get out and, and tinker with stuff and stay involved, I've always said, you know, being involved in the outdoor doors doesn't necessarily mean making a, a cast or pulling the trigger get out and work on your tackle work on your on your stuff and, and stay involved with it stay in touch and i think you know those little things that during the off season that you do pay huge dividends when it comes time to actually hit the water yeah hey speaking of joe man, i really liked your column in the newsletter this week well thank you that was kind of one of those days and you know, to where uh, there's, a, there's a lot of truth to that. And, and kind of reading through that, I was able to relive that again. And, you know, I think the world of him. And also just any time you have the ability to get out on the water and spend some time with a, a friend or a family member, whether it be in a competitive situation or just, you know, recreational, um, you still have to go out there and you still got to be able to, to figure out how to make those fish bite. And that was certainly a day that uh, I will long remember and also a great way to start out the first fishing trip of the year. So, uh-huh. <laughs> Catch yeah, some fish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, and also I want to throw a thanks out to, we've gotten a lot more uh, replies and ratings posted on iTunes. Thanks to everybody, you know, who's kind of jumping on board there. And you love to hear from everybody that's out there. That's very exciting to hear people say nice things about us. And uh, we certainly appreciate all you listeners out there. And we do appreciate good comments. Well, I'll tell you what, Aaron, I'll slip away here for a minute and come back with your conversation with David Wallace. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. 
You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zod, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. Hello and welcome back to The Edge and joining us uh, this week for the Angler Spotlight is BASS Elite Angler Dave Wolak. Dave, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge. Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, you know, Dave, we had a great time, uh, learned obviously a lot when we visited Lake Murray, and really before we kind of jump off into uh, the techniques and, and things that we did during the show, give us a little insight as far as some information concerning Lake Murray and what anglers can expect should they decide to visit there. Well, Lake Murray, first of all, is dammed up by the largest earthen dam in the entire United States, so it's pretty impressive to see, and in damming that large area up, there is a huge amount of water to fish, lots of different ways to catch bass and striper and whatever you go fishing for there but the dam itself has the main base of the lake adjacent to it which is pretty clear water I mean from extremely clear to just slightly stained and as you get up lake rivers come in and tons of creeks that have some dirtier water in the backs of the creeks and further up the river and it just provides a variety of ways to catch bass and a lot of different water clarities and just a lot of different styles that you could apply to that lake. That was one of the things that of course we stayed uh, right there uh, out of Irma outside of Columbia and you know launched every day there by the dam and one of the things that I noticed on several of our runs and when we would get in closer to the bank is that it's a little deceiving because I mean it literally is full of numerous points and islands and everything looks fishy but that's not necessarily the case. No, it isn't the case. And you know, it looks fishy because like you look from a distance and you think sometimes that the banks are have a little bit more depth than they do. But this lake is always up and down in terms of the water level. And uh, that also makes for a lot of transitions and changing. And, and we were at a time of the year when there was a lot of stuff changing. The water temperature was changing because it was the fall. And um, we actually had nice warm days when we were there. But prior to that, they had some cold weather and the water temperature started to fall. So we really had kind of like an early fall situation, and we were looking to target mostly the shad and what the shad were doing. And if we figured we'd find the shad uh, around the creeks in some way or another, uh, working their way into the creeks or in the backs, and uh, that's what we tried to target initially. And, and, and it's really a focal point when you get to a lake like this that's so big, you're trying to really narrow it down on what to target. And I knew from the past history of the several times that I've been there that there would be some schooling fish. I didn't know exact locations because it changes so rapidly with lake levels and how much water that you have to tackle when you get to a big place like that and what level the lake was at. And we did a little history there when right before we got there, the lake was up and then it started to go down about three feet or so uh, prior to us getting here. So it made for some transitional changes right when we arrived, really. Yeah, and you know, when, when you think about lake level fluctuation, does that have any positive or any adverse consequences, let's say, specific to Lake Murray? You know, you said it was falling. Uh, obviously, they last year uh, had experienced, the, you know, they, basically the entire south had experienced a, a pretty good drought. Does that have any impact on the fish specific to Lake Murray? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any inland reservoir like that, you know, my history and specific with Lake Murray as well, is that when you have 
a rising water, that's ideal for fishermen, uh, especially if it's already risen, then you have several, you know, say a week of it at its height. Um, that brings those fish in shallow, and it's, you know, ideal for those shallow water fishermen that like to get up in the willows and the backs of the creeks and flip shallow docks, whatever it may be. But with this falling water, you have to look at where the fish are looking to seek refuge. They want that creek channel or river channel or any deep water access nearby that they could seek refuge in because they feel that. They know that water's dropping. And, and that's where we ultimately did find some fish is where we had that creek channel swinging by closely. And again, related to creeks. I mean, even if the creek isn't, you know, within 100 yards, the back of the creek I'm talking about, we had on the way into a creek several situations where we saw that creek channel swing by a point and uh, we saw those that 40 feet of water right adjacent to that point. And the, and the fish were using that type of thing because they were seeking that refuge with that waterfall. And, you know, our discussion leading up to really our first morning of, of picking up our rods and reels, you know, obviously I had not spent any time whatsoever on Lake Murray. I think you had uh, mentioned that kind of your time spent here was was in, um, you know, different parts of the year. And, and really when you look, I think, anywhere across the country, there obviously are optimum times to be on a particular body of water, maybe around the spawn, maybe late once they've completely transitioned out of the summer haunts. But really fall fishing can be a little bit difficult because the fish are scattered and it, it can be often frustrating, you know, to us anglers to try and put something together. Yeah, and in many times it's a lot of little spots that you end up focusing on when you're fishing in the fall. One little kind of, I call them hold-up areas, where a group of fish will hold up prior to getting to the backs of the creeks, or the several fish that are uh, resident fish in, say, in a brush pile under a dock, or that are using a particular spot, whatever it may be. Um, and you have to kind of multiply a pattern that is sort of like a junk fishing-related pattern, because you're looking for just little groups of fish here and there, and with the lake in a transition state, it makes it difficult because even if you go one day, you go back the next day and you have another cold front come in, the water temperature drops a few degrees and, and they move. They're always on the move at this time of the year. And so it, you have to really keep up with them and it could be difficult and frustrating at times. Right. And, and you know, the thing is that you, you look at Lake Murray and I mean, I think you had said that if you don't have 30 pounds, you know, in the springtime, you might as well uh, go pat your, your fellow competitors on the back because... You, uh, you know, obviously the lake has some phenomenal fish in it, but, you know, we had to make a decision, obviously, to A, try and get some biting fish going. Schooling fish played a role into that. Now, I, one of the things that I do want you to comment on, is it fact or fiction that schooling fish always hold just little or smaller fish? That's definitely fiction. Yeah, there is a myth surrounding that, that you'll only catch small fish or the smaller size fish because they're chasing bait around and that type of thing. So they're using and expending a lot of their energy in chasing bait. So therefore, they're, they're smaller fish. But that always isn't the case. I mean, in, in this particular time of the year, especially, those fish are concentrating on those big balls of shad. And it might be just a morning and evening thing that you could really depend on getting a bigger bite. But uh, within groups of schooling fish, if you could be stealthy enough and you could be kind of hang around those areas that are that they really are using to school and, and, and push that bait up on, like, say, some of the shoals that we ended up fishing, you'll trigger a few bigger fish into biting. And uh, I've caught some big fish in tournaments, especially, where I just kind of hung around those schools and then you'll see one big roll or one big blow up. Or fishing when they're down on the bottom and fishing below the, the really active small fish, you'll catch some bigger ones. So, uh, yeah, to answer your question, I mean, I've definitely caught some big fish and schooling fish. And two things, too, before we kind of leave the topic of schooling fish. One is, I think it's important to keep everything in perspective that when you hit the body of water, you know, even though let's say that the lake, it may take 30 pounds in the springtime, 
Bottom line is that, you know, in the, the fall time of year, early fall of which we were there, you've got to be realist. And I think for anglers to have success, you know, you want to make sure that you're targeting the right things. The second thing is that I would like for you to kind of elaborate on is what are the best places and kind of the best baits to target those schooling fish with? First of all, we approached trying to find the shad by first working our way towards the backs of the creeks because ultimately that's where their destination is. They're going to work their way to the back of the creeks and the bass are going to follow and that's where you have a little bit more color in the water usually and that color in the water makes them easier to catch. And we did catch some fish in the backs all the way in the backs of the creeks on the last flat where the creek flows in uh, and we even saw some fish schooling back there. But in fishing in the backs of the creeks you're not only looking for schooling fish but you're looking for bank related docks and grass mats which we ended up fishing and they were kind of like uh, viney mats that were growing on off the bank and uh, caught some fish around all that type of structure and they're usually some better fish that you get back there because some of them hold up residence there all year long in the backs of creeks but where we found most of the groups of fish were really on kind of secondary points that were leading to the backs of the creeks that they were holding up on and and kind of waiting for that next major change in water temperature and and even maybe a fluctuation in the water level so that they can move their way into that last destination in, in the all the way in the backs of the creeks and approaching schooling fish when you see them in a place like that can be a challenge many times and um, we kind of had a whole arsenal of, of baits on the deck and it was in fact we were laughing about it several times yeah. because we had piles of rods on the deck and it's really necessary because going green into a situation like that you don't know which baits that they're going to really attack and um, I talked about approaching them on the surface and approaching them in the middle of the water column and approaching them on the bottom and many times when those fish aren't coming up you're on the surface and that's usually when they're easy to catch because you fish topwater baits and different styles of top waters to see what they're attacking the best you have to fish them in the middle of the water column or on the bottom and in the middle of the water column sometimes burning a crankbait or a jerkbait through them and you know again you could get into sizes and shapes and colors and all that when you're looking at jerkbaits and crankbaits but we we didn't have any idea what we were going to focus on and what they were going to be doing when we arrived so that's why it required a pile of baits and then when they do get on the bottom entirely you could catch them with a jig a drop shot or spoon uh, just you know as low to the bottom as you can around those balls of shad that go down and what we ended up finding is that we could pretty much catch them on anything during what they were doing and it was just a matter of kind of changing up during the course of the day to try to maximize our catch and uh, you know the size of the fish that we caught wasn't they weren't huge fish but I think we were doing as good as we can do given the time of the year and the transition that the fish were in. Right. And and the interesting aspect of that is obviously once we found something that was working, then the, the next decision was to say, okay, let's go and try and find something that's working better or not as good. Either prove or disprove, you know, what we're currently doing. And I remember going out to, uh, actually there were several humps that we went out. We marked a lot of bait fish. You know, we threw, picked up that, uh, some of the jigs. Uh, the drop shot more bottom related and the response there was not nearly as good as you know using baits like you speak of that was either in the middle of the water column or literally on the surface yeah because even when we were going out on those humps that had you know peaked out at say 15 20 feet on the high spot and they'd be surrounded by 30 to 40 feet of water we were marking the balls of baitfish on the graph were up suspended off the bottom 
So it, it was an extreme challenge for us to try to get a bait that hovers within that range that the bass and bait fish were holding and fish it effectively. And, you know, when you have the other variables of wind and everything else that we dealt with, it was extremely difficult. So we hovered right above them and, and we got a few bites, but it wasn't as effective. And, and what we saw was that the effectiveness of it was when the baits were falling vertically through the water column. I remember two specific instances. I hooked one on a jig as it was falling through a ball of bait. And I didn't even know the fish was on. I never saw a strike or anything. And you hooked one on a drop shot that you kind of pitched it out there and as it was falling through the the school of bait you got bit and you next thing you know you lift up and he and he had stolen your worm everything that we saw pointed to fishing the top of the water column or at least the middle of the water column and uh, that's why we stuck with the top water various presentations throughout the whole show is because that's what we seem to be getting the better bites with and, and that's what the fish were responding to a quick thing to to point out pertaining to you know style of baits you actually caught a, a bass that actually had two uh, bait fish in its mouth that had kind of choked up. And then also we saw one uh, that was floating dead. We actually were able to grab both of those, look at that, and somewhat a term that's called match the hatch. And there's some history, actually. You know, every every angler, I think, talks about matching the hatch. You being a trout fisherman, though, you kind of take that to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I grew up trout fishing streams, and I really saw the importance of, of matching the hatch and trout fishing. Trout are uh, extremely smart when it comes to a fly hatch and the stage of the hatch that they're in and the style of fly that, that's coming off the water. I mean, if you don't have it exact and you're going down to sometimes like a size 22 hook, and if those of you that aren't familiar that are bass fishermen, a size 22 hook is like the size of like uh, the corner of your pinky fingernail. I mean, it's <laughs> it's like tiny. And, and I mean, you have to tie a fly that matches a fly that's that size. And it's, it's extremely picky when you're dealing with trout. And bass, you know, I mean, they don't take it to that level, of course, but we were seeing that the bait fish were generally smaller and the shad that we were seeing were really small. And uh, we were presenting baits, surface baits, or every other bait that we presented to them was somewhat larger than and we saw them that they were ignoring our topwater plugs many times as opposed to the bait would be coming up kind of right next to the boat many times mm -hmm. and and they'd be blasting the shad that were right next to our boat because they were only you know say an inch and a half two inches long those small shads so i mean we made some adjustments and we got a lot of bites but that matching the hatch in this situation and the amount of forage that was available for those fish we were almost it was like an overabundance of shad that we saw we saw shad everywhere i mean even if we were in a place that wasn't you know, that didn't have bass exploding on them. We see these giant schools of shad. So you're competing with a ton of shad. And that was the time of the year. All the shad were on the surface. So we were able to see them and it, and it really keyed us into that whole topwater thing and focusing on it. Well, and I think that was uh, proven and, and both evident by, you know, we started out with basically the, the stick baits, uh, the, the spooks in that case. And then you did something a little different to where you tied on that front runner and actually were using two at the same time, but the front runner was a lot smaller and actually had some response on that. Yeah, um, I have a, a front runner that's a custom-made little balsa bait that's handmade by a gentleman in North Carolina, and um, it's basically a little prop bait the size of, say, a tiny torpedo that has a, an eyelet in the front and back, and it lays in line with your line, um, say, two feet above in front of where you would work a spook, and it allows you to still work the spook the same, but it has a, a little tiny presentation that's an option for them when it's uh, that's say two feet in front of it and it you know again sometimes and as you've seen on the show i mean even if i got a, a couple small fish on it, you'll have two fish attack it at once and it just gives them another option and um, provides a little bit more disturbance in the water and it maybe creates the impression that there's a school of fish coming by or a few shad by disturbing the surface a little bit more but either way 
uh, that small little tiny presentation I felt was more accurate in depicting what we were trying to have in, in that smaller shad presentation that we saw. Yeah, and not, and not only that, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Dave, unfortunately, we are out of time. You know, any closing thoughts uh, before we get out of here, whether it be, you know, pertaining to just schooling fish or fish in general? Uh, no, i just like to say that most importantly, go out with an arsenal of rods and uh, and have a ton of equipment on your boat and, and be ready for any situation that might be presented to you. And uh, definitely go on and ask the pro section of BassEdge.com and we'll have some tips on there for you. Sounds great. Dave, thanks so much for your time and thanks for being part of The Edge. Thank you. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump grinder. And tool carrier ever made. The Zahn. The revolution is here. Hi, I'm Jared Lindner, and you're listening to Bass Edges, The Edge. Well, Aaron, Lake Murray was a lot of fun, man. You know, especially schooling fish. You know, it doesn't get much more fun than that. No, it doesn't. And, you know, not only the fishing and spending time with Dave on the water, but we were received and greeted uh, very nicely. And, man, that community has a lot to offer. What a nice city. The whole area, the whole capital Lake City, Murray country. You got Lake Murray and Columbia, South Carolina there. I remember we had such a good time. We were there during the football season. And LSU had was coming to visit South Carolina, and a whole lot of the Tiger fans were staying in in our hotel. Yeah. Of course, uh, there's more than a few bass fishing fans down in Louisiana, so uh, we we ran into some friends of ours. We did, we did, and uh, you know, talking with them, I'm sure your uh, crimson colors that you so proudly adorn. Uh, <laughs> didn't quite mix with with the purple but, well you uh, know you got well, over you, it <laughs> you got to learn when to kind of lay low you know that was outnumbered there so yeah. uh well but, miriam uh, took care of us so you know i, I think uh, she made sure that that we were uh protected from uh any adverse uh team <laughs> negotiations i guess well she was a big she was a big gangcock yeah. fan though boy she was all over it she's going to the game and she's all excited that was so much fun and you know we were really treated to first class southern hospitality down there so, uh, boy, just a thank you. We had such a good time. I even went to the zoo while I was down there. So wow. it was, yeah, it was it was fun. I was truly impressed with a seal that can do a handstand. You know, I, <laughs> I couldn't do so. That, that is impressive. You know, and, and speaking of the hospitality, not only were we treated well there, but uh, the fishing treated us quite well. And, you know, fall is, is one of those times typically across the nation to where you look at that situation and you can kind of cringe sometimes because it can be feast or famine when it comes to fall fishing. Well, it can, and, and we were treated to some really beautiful fishing. You know, it, it seems like on every one of these trips, I come back with this sort of mental image that sticks with me that sort of represents the trip. And I don't know if you can remember, but it was that first night, and the sun was going down, and the fish were just busting the top all over. And it just seemed like you could look out across the lake, and there were just little pockets of explosion at far as you could see fish were just schooling and it was amazing and you know we were sitting at that time on a on a hump that the fish were running the shad upon and you could just sit there and by gosh they would show up well no question and you know when dave and i had, had talked about the night before and kind of 
did our, our usual map study like we do before we hit the water and, and had various discussions there, we knew for a fact that the schooling fish was going to come into play. Now, the difference, I think, with targeting you know schooling fish is that you've got to look for these higher percentage areas, but it's one of those situations, Steve, to where you know, you're almost going into kind of the off the main points and also into the backs of the creeks, and you never know where they are going to show themselves on the surface. And so when we would go back into a creek, you know, instead of running wide open as hard as we could go to get to a particular spot, what we were doing is, is really running just about 3,500 RPMs. Both of us were, were looking around, paying attention to what was going on, and it was almost using our, our sight this time instead of, let's say, our electronics like we would normally do when we were graphing out over a point or, you know, next to a dock looking for brush or something like that. It was literally a very, very visual type of fishing and that is a lot of fun it is a lot of fun but i think one of the things that some anglers get into is getting a little too hung up on the surface because those fish bust the surface when they chase those shad to the top but you got to remember they're doing the same thing under the water they're chasing those fish and so uh, when those fish are down you get the crankbait out and get down in there with them and you can just continue to catch them just like you can on the surface excellent point because that is uh, how many times have we seen this you know we talk about this all the time the underwater schooling activity that is taking place you know if those balls of shad are still holding down those fish will still go in there and feed on them and anytime that you have the ability like you speak of maybe it's a crankbait maybe it's a jig maybe it's a shaky head but also, you know, moving right over top of them and sitting there with a drop shot, another very effective way for targeting schooling fish. So don't get caught up on the fact of being pigeonholed into that schooling fish only take place on the surface because there's also a lot of chaos that's going on underneath. Boy, sounds fun, man. I'm ready for some warm weather. <laughs> I am too. I am. Hey, Aaron, I think I'm uh, in the mood to give something away. You're always in the mood to give something away. What are we giving away this week, Well, Steve? I am. I am. We're going to give away one of our Fishing on the Edge t-shirts, and those things are becoming collector's items. <laughs> we're about to we're about to have to go print some new T-shirts and a hat and a decal, and those are going out to DJ in Plantation, Florida. Well, congratulations, DJ! Thanks uh, for entering the contest, and uh, for everyone else out there that has not entered, make sure you do that because, uh, as you know, we're giving away some uh, some neat stuff here, and would love to uh, put some of that in your hands. Well, we sure would, and uh, it's good to hear from you, DJ, and it's always good to hear from our good friends down in Florida. I tell you what, Aaron, let's take a quick break and let's get back and talk to the pond ball. Hi, I'm Chris Ball, and stick around for some more tips and techniques on Bass Edge, The Edge. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors. All right, we are back on the edge, and to talk about the 80-20 rule is Bass Edge regular, and that is Pond Boss Bob Lusk. Bob, again, thanks so much for being part of the edge. Greetings. Thanks for having me. Hey, you bet. You know, I, the, the, kind of the, the title of this I actually is 80-20 rule, but uh, I think you actually even have it narrowed down a little bit more than that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, after 30 years of being in electric fishing boats and building lakes, draining lakes, looking at fish, I think it's more like 90-10. I think 90% of the fish 
inhabit maybe 10% of the water. Well, and I, I think, you know, when you look at uh, and taking your studies and then also just as anglers of, of being on, you know, large reservoirs and things like that, the challenge almost then becomes of, you know, eliminating the 90%, but also figuring out what 10% that they live in. You know, that is, that's part of the fun and that's part of the frustration too. And I, I'll tell you something else, Aaron, that I've learned over the years is that 10% moves. They may inhabit a certain 10% of a body of water in December and a totally different 10% of that lake in May, and then a completely different 10% in July as the different patterns evolve seasonally. So it's a challenge to go out and find those fish. But I tell you, there are several things that are consistent. You know, almost all the time, largemouth bass are looking to inhabit points with some kind of structure or cover, most of the time in relatively shallow water with quick access to deep water. That's one of the constants that I see. The big difference is in the summertime, those areas may be submerged, you know, bumps and humps 150 feet out in the lake that, where it looks like an underground volcano, and they're suspended around the edges but holding close to that cover. But in the spring, it may be along a ridge off of a point right next to the shore where there's some vegetation or sunken trees nearby. And is that because, um, you know, just to pause briefly on, on the point discussion, is that because of the ambush point for security, all the above? I think it's a combination of things. Number one, proximity to food for fish to eat. Number two, it's good oxygen content and visibility. Number three is safety. Number four is an area where they can congregate, social gathering points, so to speak. So when you combine all those factors, fish are tending to try to find the perfect environment during the different seasons of the year. And a lot of that hinges around the temperature. You know, in the wintertime, it's cold, so they have a tendency to go down lower in the water. Believe it or not, water deeper in the wintertime is warmer. So they're trying to escape that cold water at the surface and find warmer water down 25 or 30 feet, and vice versa in the summer. The water a little bit deeper is cooler. You know, in the springtime, the water temperature is perfect. So I think a lot of that hinges on the temperature of the water. And then the fish move to adjust to that. And, oh, by the way, we need to eat. And, oh, by the way, we don't need to be eaten. And, oh, by the way, we like to congregate. And, oh, by the way, we like safety. So, you know, talking about the moving, you know, I've literally seen during the day to where the fish actually move, you know, almost hour to hour. And if you kind of take that from the winter perspective, like, you know, we're seeing some of this cooler weather now from the Midwest, you know, into the North, you know, they will move shallower as the day progresses, providing, you know, that that water warms up or what the bait fish are doing, maybe, you know, keying in on some of those larger black rocks that's drawing the heat. Uh, is that what you find? That's exactly what I find. I see the same thing. If I take my electric fishing boat out, you know, in, in February or early March in the afternoon, I'm going to see fish behaving totally different than if I'm taking it out in the middle of the night or early in the morning. You're right. I mean, as the temperature warms in the afternoon on crisp winter days, and that temperature, all it's got to do is go up three or four degrees, and that's enough to motivate them to seek that warmth. Because you got to remember, a bass's optimum temperature where it moves the fastest and the most active is somewhere around 78, 83 degrees. And if that water temperature is 53, you know, down 8 or 10 feet, but it's 58 up close to the surface, they're going to want that warmer water. So they're going to go to it. Well, and then you factor in, let's say, you know, where you've got the winter patterns um, that's getting ready to head into, in some parts of the country, actually right now, you know, getting to head into the pre-spawn. Well, during the spawn, you know, that's kind of one of those, I think, unique times because not only 
Do you have, you know, the, the fish that are coming in from the depths getting ready to stage? Then you have some that's actually spawning, some that have already spawned. But the other thing is those violent weather patterns that we often see in the spring. Oh, my gosh, that makes a huge difference. But you know what? It doesn't make as big a difference as we might think. You know, the, the violent weather patterns, what they're going to do is alter that temperature in the top foot of the water. But during pre-spawn and, and during the spawn, that one foot of water is going to be significant. I've actually seen rainstorms come through and drive a bass off of the nest, and that fish stay off that nest for five or six days before it comes back. So the weather can play a role. The barometric pressure plays a role. You know, the temperature plays a role. Fresh water coming in, muddy water coming in, every bit of that changes up the behaviors of a fish, and they're going to adjust to that. But would it be safe to assume that chances are under those conditions the fish will obviously will move until they seek that comfort, but chances are they're not going to move all the way back out, let's say, to Main Lake or to their winter patterns? Yes, that's true. They don't like to move that far without a giant motivating factor. And that giant motivating factor is that all these new conditions are so unkind to me that I've got to go find somewhere else. So... You know, a fish's instinct knows that when weather changes or the patterns of the watercolor changes, that's always temporary. And those fish instinctively know that they don't need to depart that scene and go out 450 yards away to find something better because it's going to change fairly quickly. Well, Bob, it's always a treat to have you here on the edge. Um, you know, why don't you let us know how we can get in touch with you? I'll tell you what, Aaron, if anybody's got a question, go to BassEdge.com and visit Ask the Pro thing. Ask a question there. One of us will get right back to you. Or they can come to my website at pondboss.com. Click on Ask the Boss. That's a forum. Register. It's free. Ask questions there, and you'll get some exchanges like you've not seen before. Come with us. You bet. Well, thanks so much again, Bob, and we look forward to uh, talking with you again in the near future. Aaron, I love it. Thanks for including me, my friend. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. But, Steve, who do we have up next week? Well, we're going out west again to speak with California elite angler Jared Littner. Chris Ball will also be along to talk about frog fishing. I think we're going to be on the Delta, and certainly uh, when it comes to frog fishing, there is no one better than Chris Ball. So look forward to that. Be sure to join us uh, for this show on the Outdoor Channel, where Bass Edge is seen three times weekly at 8 a.m. Thursdays, 9 a.m. on Fridays, and Saturday afternoon at 2.30 all Eastern Time. For the latest Bass Edge information, merchandise, and for an opportunity to win prizes, ask the pro questions, log on to BassEdge.com. For Steve Brigman, I am Aaron Martin, and we look forward to seeing you again next week, right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Megaware Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.